You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. In the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, the tradition I was reared in, I have noticed that there is a lot of anxiety out there about the Bible. I heard a Biblical Studies colleague, who is also a member of the clergy, recently comment that parishioners often ask him the following question, How do I read the Bible? So in today's episode, I would like to address this question, how do I read the Bible? I will cover this topic in two episodes. Today's episode will be part one of two. It's important to address this question, how do I read the Bible? Because if we let our anxiety about reading the Bible get the better of us, we will shrug, give up, and put the Bible Back on the shelf. I want to dig a bit at this question to get to the heart of the matter. What is prompting this question? How do I read the Bible? There are book lovers out there, those who love to read and read widely, fiction, nonfiction, biography, history, poetry, who are stupefied, blocked when it comes to the Bible. Why? Why the question, how do I read the Bible? The fact that people are asking how to read the Bible tells me that they are not reading it. So this is the reality. We do not read the Bible. Maybe we've tried and then stalled Or maybe we've started and then we got bored or confused, and so we stopped. Still, our anxiety about it lingers, and we might live in a state of quiet guilt about it. We might be wondering to ourselves, shouldn't I know what this book is all about? What it is saying? Let's begin with first addressing another question. You might say it is the question behind the question, which is, why don't we read the Bible? I offer two reasons. Reason number one, because 
We do not know that we can. We do not know that we as lay people can take it upon ourselves to read the Bible. What is a lay person? A lay person is a person without professional or specialized knowledge in a particular subject. In the context of church life, it refers to those of us who are the non-clergy members, those of us among the congregation who sit in the pews. In the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, we look to our leaders, our clergy, for direction. It's baked into the culture. We do not vote on the instruction we receive. Our clergy's fundamental role is to teach us, and that's a good thing. I am not disputing the order of things. The hierarchy, the order, is right and proper and serves a function. Ours is a culture of deference. We defer to our clergy and their direction on the Bible. It's our self-concept, the way we understand ourselves. It doesn't occur to us that we, the lay people, can read the Bible on our own, much less understand it. We rely on and expect our clergy to know what the Bible means and to explain it to us. We bow out in the name of deference. And in doing so, we fall into the error of false humility. We look humble in our deference, but this is a disguise. This is deflection, not deference, and certainly not a virtue. In this, we have a convenient excuse from which we benefit. We benefit in two ways. One, we get to be virtuous. We get to feel good about our humility. And two, we are excused from the work, from the effort of reading a long and difficult text. We get to be lazy without judgment or consequence. It's a great deal, and that great deal is at least part of why this failure to read the Bible ourselves persists. We are all, clergy and laity alike, being served by this great deal. So, we simply do not read it. You know it's true, my Eastern Orthodox Christian friends. We are all in this boat, myself included. I figure better to clear the air and know what we are dealing with so that we might make a different choice. Reason number two for why we do not read the Bible. Because in Eastern Orthodox Christian culture, we treat the Bible as a commodity. What is a commodity? A commodity is a word used in the context of commerce, but it is useful here. It refers to a basic good, meaning a product or material that is interchangeable with other goods of the same type. These goods have a uniform quality. What on earth am I talking about? 
talking about the way we treat the Bible as though it is just another product, just another set of writings in our tradition. We treat it as one among other respected texts. The Church Fathers, the Bible, take your pick. And worse, we treat the Bible as though it is our product. We act like it is ours. We own it. We lord over it. And in doing so, we rob it of its authority. We fail to respect its primacy. The Bible and the writings of the Church Fathers are on the same shelf. They are products, so to speak, of our tradition. Both respected, to be sure. But the Eastern Orthodox ethos prefers the Fathers. It's reflexive. It is baked into our culture. We treat that which is primary, the Bible, as of about the same value as the writings of the Church Fathers. In a sense, this is understandable. We all have an instinctive connection with our ancestors, our fathers and mothers who came before us and who formed and upheld our traditions. It is natural. Our religious culture forms our identity. And we like our identity and we are proud of it. We see no problem with a loose distinction between the Bible and the writings of the Church Fathers. But for the student of the Bible, this is a big problem. When we make no distinction, and when we treat the writings of the Church Fathers as our reference, we are confused. We do not understand the difference between a primary and a secondary source. There are two kinds of sources, primary and secondary. Using texts as an example, a primary source is an original, and because it is an original, it is authoritative. It is the reference, the subject matter. A secondary source is an evaluation or analysis of a primary source. Charlotte's Web, the much-beloved 1952 children's novel by E.B. White about a livestock pig named Wilbur and his friendship with a barn spider named Charlotte, is a primary source. The New York Times Book Review of Charlotte's Web written that same year by Eudora Welty, is a secondary source, as is the Wikipedia page for the novel. Secondary sources attempt to describe, explain, and offer a point of view about a primary source. You are saying something about the subject matter. Coming back to our discussion of the Bible and the writings of the Church Fathers, the Bible is a primary source. It is authoritative. The writings of the Church Fathers, those which deal with the Bible, homilies and commentaries, are a secondary source. They are analyses, descriptions, explanations, 
interpretations of the biblical text. When we treat a secondary source as a primary one, we are committing a basic error of scholarship. This reflexive preference, tendency to refer to the writings of the Church Fathers and their explication of the Bible over the biblical text itself, has resulted in Eastern Orthodox Christian biblical illiteracy. What is taught is not the Bible, but what the Fathers say about it. To add complexity to this, there is no one monolithic group of writers and writings. There is no definitive list of fathers and writings that all agree should be taught above others. We have a variety of writings with different emphases from different eras. It's true. There are a few fathers who are universally recognized and revered but even among these, there is a divide. There are the so-called Great Fathers. In Eastern Orthodoxy, the Great Fathers are four. Four fathers who lived in the 4th century AD. They are Athanasius of Alexandria, Gregory of Nazianzus, also known as Gregory the Theologian, Basil of Caesarea, and John Chrysostom. But there are four other great fathers who lived and wrote in the 4th through 6th century AD who are recognized and read by the Western Church. They are Ambrose of Milan, Jerome, Augustine of Hippo, and Pope Gregory I. Though they are also considered great fathers, and lived in roughly the same era as Athanasius, Gregory, Basil, and Chrysostom, we do not tend to hear about them in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Aside from these, the Great Fathers, Eastern and Western, there are many other fathers, and they are grouped in different ways. There is grouping by language, the language in which they wrote, we have the fathers who wrote in Greek. In addition to those among the greats, we have already mentioned, there are seven others. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyon, Clement, Origen, and Cyril of Alexandria, Maximus the Confessor, and John of Damascus. And what of those fathers who wrote in Syriac? such as Ephraim the Syrian, who wrote commentaries on the books of Genesis and Exodus. There are also groupings of fathers by epoch. We have the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD as a reference point. We have the Ante-Nicaean fathers, those who lived and wrote before Nicaea. We have the Nicaean fathers, those who wrote around the time of Nicaea. And we have the post-Nicaean fathers, those who lived and wrote after Nicaea. Have I made the case adequately that this opting for the church fathers over the Bible is not a simple matter? Our leaders, those tasked to teach us, 
have to deal with this complexity, and each have their preferences, their go-to fathers from whom they seek direction. Clergy are reasonably consistent in teaching when it comes to church dogma, but when it comes to the Bible, no two will offer the same explanation. It's exhausting even to speak about, and we do not know what to make of it all. We, clergy and laity alike, are confused and overwhelmed. Now that we have addressed the question, why don't we read the Bible? Let us turn our attention to the question which prompted this episode. How do I read the Bible? I like lists, and so I have put together a list of suggestions in the form of a list of do's and don'ts, but with a twist. My list begins with the don'ts, followed by the do's. We will cover the do's in the next episode. So let us begin with don't number one. Don't read it. Do not read the Bible. You might be wondering, am I nuts or am I being cheeky? Neither, actually. I am serious and I repeat, do not read it. Why would I make such a suggestion? I make this suggestion for two reasons. First, because you have anxiety about it. Have you ever tried to learn or retain something when you're anxious? Doesn't work out, does it? You can't focus. You're scattered, overwhelmed, and intimidated. Calm yourself by taking yourself out of the process. Second, because your approach is all wrong. What do I mean by this? I mean that you make two errors when you try to read the Bible. Error number one, you don't really read the Bible, you use it. You use the Bible for your edification, for inspiration or spiritual uplifting. You use it as a tool to serve yourself. You let your emotional state determine how you use it. When you're grieving, you turn to John chapter 14 or Psalm 46 for comfort. When you're feeling lonely or fearful, you read Psalm 23. And when you're seeking a feeling of peace, you might turn to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. This is not correct. One of the most blasphemous questions ever posed to me is, what is your favorite passage in the Bible? It is not for me or you to have a favorite. It is for us to hear its story in total and to understand its lessons. The Bible isn't there to serve you. It is there to teach you. 
Error number two. You try to understand it. When you read the Bible, your focus is on what you understand rather than on the content, on the story you are reading. You read a few lines or a passage or even a chapter, and then you stop and you think. And you're thinking, how do I understand it? What does it mean? And more dreadful than what does it mean, you ask, what does it mean to me? How do I apply it in my life? You make your reading of the Bible about your understanding, but you fail to realize that you have to keep reading. It's peculiar because you don't treat other literature you read the same way. Consider the great Aubrey Maturin series of novels by Patrick O'Brien on which the 2003 movie Master and Commander was based. There are 20 novels in this mighty series of nautical historical fiction. It is a story set during the Napoleonic Wars, which centers on the friendship between Captain Jack Aubrey of the Royal Navy and his ship's surgeon, Stephen Maturin. You don't read the first in the series, master and commander, and stop every paragraph or every chapter to ask yourself, what does it mean? You don't expect to understand it because you know that the story is unfolding. It's logical. You take it in. You allow it to unfold. Now, why don't you do that with the Bible? Why don't you allow the biblical text the story to unfold. This focus on your understanding guarantees that you will not understand it, and your stops and starts do nothing but make you more anxious, confused, and frustrated. So, to repeat, do not read the Bible. Don't number two. Don't think. When you read the Bible, do not think. You cogitate. You think deeply. Meditate. Reflect on a story that you do not know. You use your considerable mental tools. You ruminate, dissect, philosophize, imagine, apply premises, and philosophies to the text you're reading before you know its content. It's illogical. You put the proverbial cart before the horse. Don't do that. You have to know the story first. Know the details of the story before you have anything to think or say about it. Moreover, the Bible its epic instructional story, its stance is against your thinking. It is crafted specifically and intentionally against human wisdom. It is a critique of Greek philosophy and meditation against the building up of the human ego. 
It does not celebrate man. The God we are introduced to in Genesis 1 issues commands, and as the story unfolds, we hear a systematic telling of how his creations, the human beings, generation after generation, refuse to obey him and suffer the consequences of that. It is a cautionary tale. It is not an invitation to dialogue with it. It is not interested in your thinking about it. It is interested in you submitting to its content so that you may hear its lessons and behave accordingly. Thinking puts you in the wrong posture. It's the posture of you. It makes you the authority. This is not the way. The Bible rejects your assessment of it. It wants you to submit to its wisdom, not yours. Don't number three. Don't jump to application. Do not jump to how to apply the lesson in your life before you know the story. You might be asking, but isn't how we apply the instruction what really counts? Isn't what we do what really matters? Certainly that's true. But how do you know what to do? You must know the story first and then its lesson before you consider how it might apply in your life. This rushed application pushes the story aside and puts you and your concerns at the forefront. This is the pickle that priests find themselves in today because everyone wants to know what to do, what decision to make, how to behave in a particular situation in their life. You have to decide what to do in your life. I'm simply pointing out that the bias toward application puts you at risk of misunderstanding both the story and the lesson. Let's consider an example from the Bible. Consider 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's ground ourselves by first putting the book of 1 Samuel in its context. Where is it in the biblical canon? The biblical canon refers to the accepted collection of books which comprise the Bible. This book, 1 Samuel, is one of two books entitled Samuel. In the order of books, 1 Samuel is placed after the book of Judges. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are among the prophetic books, the so-called former prophets. In order, the former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. When I speak about the order of the books of the Bible, in this case, the Old Testament, I am using the Leningrad Codex as my reference. The Leningrad Codex is the oldest complete manuscript of the Old Testament books, written in Hebrew, currently known. It is dated to the 11th century AD. 
the Biblica Hebraica Stuttgartensia, which is widely used today, is a reproduction of the Leningrad Codex. Let's return to 1 Samuel chapter 15 as an example to help us understand what I mean by the risk of jumping to application. In this chapter, we have a showdown between Samuel, God's prophet, and Saul, the newly appointed king of Israel. God sends Samuel to give instructions to Saul. He commands that Saul destroy the Amalekites. Earlier in the story, in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, the Amalekites start a fight with Israel and there is a battle. Israel wins the battle. At the end of the chapter, God vows to punish them. He swears that he will blot out the memory of the Amalekites. Now, fast forward five books later. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God is now carrying out his vow. He commands Saul to attack the Amalekites and totally destroy them. His instructions are specific. All their men, women, children, and their livestock are to be destroyed. So Saul gathers the people, and they destroy the Amalekites, but not totally. They don't destroy everything as instructed. They destroy the livestock that they think are worthless, but the best livestock they spare and take for themselves. God is displeased, and he sends Samuel to confront Saul. Samuel goes looking for Saul and is told that Saul is parading around. The implication is that he is patting himself on the back for the victory. Samuel finds Saul, and Saul immediately says to Samuel, boldly, Oh, hello there! I have carried out God's instructions. And Samuel, very cleverly, says to Saul, Oh, really? Then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? And Saul rushes to defend himself. He stumbles to explain that the people saved the best livestock so that they might make a sacrifice for God, but that the rest were destroyed. And Samuel has a little talk with Saul. He poses that rhetorical question. What is going on here, Saul? When you were nothing special, God chose you and made you king over Israel. Now he sends you on a mission with clear instructions and you disobey. Did you not hear him? He told you to totally destroy the Amalekites the people, and their goods. And instead, you took spoils for yourself. Saul backpedals. He blames the people that they took the spoils, but for a good reason, to make a sacrifice for God. It wasn't for him. It was for God all along. And Samuel ends the conversation by giving Saul the classic prophetic teaching. Saul, God wants your obedience, not your sacrifices. And since you disobeyed, 
you rejected his command, you are out. So Saul is kicked off the throne. And the chapter ends by saying that God regretted that he had made Saul the king over Israel. What to make of this chapter? What is the lesson? And how are we to apply it? This chapter and the details given are meant to be heard as a cautionary tale, a warning. God in this story gives a command and expects full obedience. For the characters in the story, the lesson is that there is no half obedience when a command is given by God. You, as the hearer of this story, are observing the story as it unfolds. For you, this is an example of the biblical critique of human arrogance and man's resistance to God's rule. That is the lesson. Saul thought that he was something as newly appointed king and that he could selectively obey God and just adjust the terms a bit. After all, he is king, right? But he failed to realize that he was not there because he was something special, but because God chose him for his own reasons, and we are not told what his reasons are. And since God is the real king, who has authority over Saul, he expects to be obeyed, and there will be consequences for disobedience. This is Godfather style. As a hearer, if you've been listening to the story up until 1 Samuel 15, you have gotten to know this God and his instruction and command. And you would have already heard many examples of characters who, though explicitly commanded by God to do a particular thing, decide to do it their own way instead. Or, to partially obey and then try to justify their actions or blame someone else, as Saul does here in this chapter, blaming the people, deflecting responsibility for his failure to fully obey God. You, as the hearer of the story up until that point, have been primed to side with God in his judgment you are meant to hear 1 Samuel chapter 15 and marvel that Saul could be so stupid. You cringe as Saul makes excuses and you understand fully God's decision to kick him off his throne. It's logical. Now let us return to the question of application and 1 Samuel chapter 15. There is nothing for you to apply in your life. You cannot take the story out of the book and apply it in the way that you would like. You cannot draw conclusions or render judgments. You cannot conclude from this chapter that God endorses violence or that Saul is a mighty conqueror and defender of Israel and paint an icon of him to hang in your church. This chapter does not give you license to go out and commit violence in the name of God. If there were an Amalekite people living in your neighborhood today, 
This story does not permit you to mistreat or abuse them because God commanded Saul to destroy them in 1 Samuel 15. So to recap, do not jump to how to apply the lesson in your life. Be patient, suspend judgment, and hear the story unfold. Today, we began to address the question, how do I read the Bible? We started the episode by admitting that we, in the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, do not read the Bible. And we offered two reasons for why that might be. Next, we turn to the question, how do I read the Bible? And I began to offer a list of suggestions in the form of a list of do's and don'ts. We explored three don'ts today. Don't number one is don't read the Bible. Don't number two is don't think. And don't number three is don't jump to application. And that is enough for today. In the next episode, we will continue our discussion as I offer and explore three do's, three suggestions for how to read the Bible. I hope you've enjoyed and been challenged by today's content, and I encourage you to listen and listen again. Until next time, this is Vexed. Vext is a production of the Ephesus School Network.